1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19 is our text this morning. Come to a new section of the book. We're done with 11 through 14, which kind of corrected the thinking of the Corinthians when it came to corporate worship, taught them all about love and edification, things like that, gifts rightly understood. And now we come to 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the resurrection of the dead. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is not primarily about the resurrection of Christ. Primarily, it's about the resurrection of the dead following the resurrection of Christ. So today, you'll see the resurrection of Christ articulated and even the fact that the witnesses were present that saw the resurrected Christ, the fact that uh, that happened, his resurrection happened, means that our resurrection therefore will happen. The Corinthian church was evidently misled. Some thought that the physical life in this life is what happened. They were to enjoy this life, and then once they died, then later they would spiritually be with Christ and nothing else. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Over and over again, the New Testament is pointing to the resurrection of the dead, a physical resurrection of the dead. A lot of people will ask me, usually it's little kids, but sometimes it's older people, what's heaven going to be like? And I say, look around. (laughs) Find beauty in this earth. It's literal beauty. It's physical. It's going to be like this earth except without sin. So you're going to enjoy the, the rivers and the mountains and the trees and the smells and all of that, but without sin. You're going to enjoy buying and selling, engaging in commerce, but without sin. And all of the things that you're enjoying, you are going to know that they come from the hand of the Father through Jesus the Son, whom the Spirit has drawn us to. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> the resurrection of the dead. In this passage, verses 1 through 19, Paul starts us off by trying to keep us confident. He wants them confident for eternity, and that's the title of my message, Confident About Eternity. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born or stillborn, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied confident about eternity. Maybe it's my midlife crisis. I don't know. 
I am 45. But I've been thinking a lot about death lately. I did some research on funerals and burials last summer. Maybe that's what gets me thinking about death as well. But I'm convinced that the Bible wants us to often think about our death. Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days. It's good to think about death. I would also argue the Bible wants you to think about death so that you live rightly now. You live in light of physical death and in light of a future resurrection of the dead. But I do think about death. I think about what it'll be like when I'm lying on my deathbed if I'm given that opportunity. Where will my mind go? What will I think about? I don't want to have any fears. I don't want to have any regrets that aren't covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I guess in short, you could say I want to have confidence in that moment. If my mind is gone or going, I want to be able to say like John Newton did, I don't remember much, but I do remember that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I want to remember that. If we're not given moments on our deathbed to think, maybe our death comes suddenly. In that split second before it comes, I want to think about the fact that Christ came to die for sinners, and I'm His, and He's mine. One of the fathers, as you probably know, of one of the nine-year-olds that died this week in Nashville, one of the fathers was a Presbyterian pastor, and the family issued this statement through him, through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. The question I have is, how can he be so confident? The reason he can be confident is because he believes what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. There is coming a resurrection of the dead. We can be confident in the face of death. And when that's true, then we can live. And you'll see that all throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the coming weeks. Paul writes to give the Corinthians confidence about their standing with God based on the gospel and on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's what he does in today's passage, verses 1 through 19. He gives the Corinthians confidence in two things, that the, fa- the fact that the gospel actually saves and the resurrection of Christ actually happened. All right, so two reasons for confidence, and that's our outline for the morning. Two reasons we can be confident about our eternal future. First, verses 1 through 4, the gospel of Christ really does save. He reminds them of the gospel at the beginning of this book and at the end of this book. And I'm so glad these reminders are in the book of 1 Corinthians. These reminders for us today maybe wouldn't surprise us if he wrote them to the Thessalonian believers. But maybe sometimes you'd be kind of surprised that these reminders are here written to the church at Corinth. Because this church was a hot mess. We know that. We've been looking at that for 14 chapters. But I want to remind you of the bookends to 1 Corinthians. Remember what it said at the very beginning, what Paul wanted them to know? Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. You are not lacking any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's judgment day. The day when he returns to destroy and to save his own, to bring his own home. They will stand guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what Paul says at the very beginning of this letter to the Corinthians. And then he rebukes them. He chastises them. He corrects them. He instructs them for 14 chapters. To where by the end, if you were a Corinthian receiving that letter in the first place, you might 
feel bruised and beat up. And it would have been appropriate. But then again, he brings the balm of the gospel at the end of the book in our passage. Just listen again to verses 1 through 4 and think about the group that he's talking to. Them being the primary audience and us being then the later audience. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's trying to give them confidence. And that's such a God thing to do. Rebuking his people, but then reminding them of their justification before him, of their standing before him. God, our God, is an encouraging God. Our God is a God who wants his children to know that they are in his family. Yes, they fight and yell and are selfish and troubled and sinful, but they're in his family. And they'll never be outside of his family. Our God's a comforting God, even when we sin. Again, verse 1, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received in which you stand. And this is the pattern. The gospel is preached And then some who hear the gospel, receive the gospel, believe it, trust it, and trust Jesus with their life because of the gospel message. And then, therefore, they stand. They're secure. This is the only way to have standing before a holy God. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be right before God than by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. People could say, oh, you know, I'm right before God. I go out and commune with nature and I just, I just love creation. That does not mean you're right with God. In fact, it might mean, according to Romans 1, that you prefer the creation over the creator. The only way to be right with God, according to the scriptures, is through the message, believing the message that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, to give them his righteousness, and he rose again on the third day to give them life, justification, innocence before God. That's how we are made right before God. Not by doing more good than we used to, not by doing more good than our neighbors, not because the world is horrible and we're not as horrible. That is, those are no ways to be right before God. The only way to be right before God is by the good news message of the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that brings us home. We don't bring ourselves home. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and when you receive it, you stand in it. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved. There's an aspect of our salvation that is past. Jesus did the work. It's done. There's an aspect that we are currently now being saved. And one day we will finally be saved. The New Testament speaks of the past, present, future salvation that we have. And then this, if you hold fast to the word, the gospel, the message that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. There are people that claim to be followers of Christ because of the gospel. You can see this in Mark 4, Parable of the Soils, and a number of other places, 1 John 2, John 6. People that claim to be followers of his, but their belief is in vain. It lasts as long as they are healthy or don't have any persecution or the cares of this world don't, don't glitter and kind of seduce them. But for those who truly believe in Christ... There's salvation, unless you believed in vain. Richard Pratt says this. I find it helpful to make sense of this this passage. Paul did not mean that truly regenerate people could lose their salvation. We know that that's not true. Nor that truly regenerate people were without sin and failure. He understood, as the Bible teaches, that saving faith proves itself over time. Saving faith proves itself over time. Over time. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as a first importance. And here he summarizes the gospel. Just, just kind of a brief summary of the gospel. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's the summary of the good news message. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the plan of God. According to the scriptures. 
He was buried. He was literally dead. It was verified he was dead. Professional executioners oversaw his death. He was put in a tomb, dead, 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 dead. Not like, oh, there's a little twitch there. Maybe he's not. No, fully dead. He died. And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he died for sinners. He was dead. He was raised by God the Father on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul says this is of first importance. Now he's been teaching them a lot of important things for 14 chapters. You're selfish. You've got gender roles mixed up. You're not loving one another well. You're not serving one another well. You are competing with one another. You are get picking your own teachers and competing with one another. And there are divisions in your church. Some of you are suing one another. You're engaged in sexual immorality. You don't care about the needs of the people struggling in your church. You're not loving. You're not patient. You're not forbearant. There are problems And all of those things are important. But at the end of the book, Paul says, here's what's most important for you to know. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures does Paul have in mind here? I don't know. Probably many. I would think certainly Isaiah 53, the one we read earlier, which indicated that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I would think that that would be one that Paul would have in mind. Raised by God on the third day, is that possibly a reference to Hosea 6? Some of you are in Bible studies going through Hosea. Hosea 6, on the third day he will revive us, make us live. Is that a reference to the third day resurrection of Jesus? I don't know, but the thing to understand is the Scriptures testify to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And Jesus came, died, rose again on behalf of sinners. The gospel of Christ is what saves. And that's what I want you to believe. (laughs) There's this idea sometimes in the Christian life that we, we come to faith through the gospel door And then, hey, gospel's no longer needed. Now, what are we supposed to do? But the New Testament writers are constantly reminding the church, the saved, of the gospel. Because when we forget the gospel, we so often turn our salvation or our keeping saved, we turn it into a work that we do. No, we came by faith, we continue by faith in what Jesus has already done for us. That's what secures us. That's where we find our hope. So in real time and space, in real life, when you go through three, four, five days in a row where you've been sinful and selfish and arrogant and proud and unloving, you start to wonder, am I really saved? And where do you go to find that answer? Do you go back into your own heart and say, well, I didn't do that bad of whatever. Or I've had some good moments too. I hope you don't go there looking for evidence. I hope you go back 2,000 years ago to see a Savior who came to die for sinners. And you find your justification there. Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners. Therefore, we can have confidence. The Bible wants God's people to dwell in security based on the salvation that he's given them. I, I, I try not to overload you with lots of cross-references, but stay tuned for an overload of lots of cross-references, okay? <laughs> just, I mean, just, just sit back and take it in, all right? Listen to this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, sealed, just airtight, sealed. How are you sealed? When you had a bunch of good months all in a row. No, no, no. When you believed the gospel, sealed, airtight. Listen to this. I'm sure that neither life nor death, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the Son loves you and the Father loves you and the Father sent the Son to die for you and then he dies for you, there's no way to then become unloving to him. That love has been demonstrated. You are secure. His death was not in vain. Listen, from the Old Testament, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. All. Or the benediction in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Or John 6, 37, Jesus saying this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you've come to Christ, he will never cast you out. The gospel of Christ really does save. It really does. So what will you think about in your last moments? Either on your deathbed or... If death comes suddenly, those split seconds before death, what will you think about? Where will your confidence lie? Will it be from some righteousness inside of you or or a righteousness that's been given to you by Christ? I think of my hero, Robert Merrick Shane. Many of you know that I've got an affinity for him, his life being such an example to me. McShane said this, he wrote, he wrote poetry often, he wrote this poem. I love these lyrics. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. There it is. Dressed in beauty, not my own but the righteousness of Christ. So what's the application here? Christian, keep believing the gospel. It's Jesus Christ who secured you before God the Father. Keep believing the gospel. Here's a second reason we can be confident about our future. Verses 5 through 19, the resurrection of Christ really did happen. It's a reason for confidence. So the gospel saves us, and the gospel includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and that he, having once been dead, buried, now raised, that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. So the resurrected Lord, new glorified body, appeared to Peter and then the twelve. All kinds of questions here. When, how, when was it? This is Paul simply saying, Peter saw him. Then the 12 saw him, all the 12 disciples saw him, probably including Matthias there, the new disciple. Judas was already dead. Then, verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Aren't you thankful for this as a Christian 2,000 years later? This isn't just that Jesus allegedly rose from the dead. Well, well, who were the witnesses? Well, no one saw him. Well, how do you know he was raised from the dead? Ah, someone told me. No, no, we have far better than that. He was raised by God the Father, and then he went and started appearing to people. They saw him. You know the stories. Thomas touching the scars and believing Whereas before, he didn't believe until he saw him. And at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, blessed are those who don't see and still believe. That's us. So there's testimony here. He appeared to people. Over 500 at once. This is how you prove that you're alive from the dead. You appear to a large group of people. Their stories can match. People can... Ask more than one person. You ask one person, did you see Jesus risen? 
Yes, I saw. Okay, but that's just one. Well, there's a line of 499 men after them. How many women were with them? So he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. We know the Bible often counts households by the male designation, brothers, 500 men. Were there many others with them, their family members? The point is he appeared to a lot of people at one time. This wasn't true. There was mass hallucination there or mass conspiracy. Hey, I got an idea. Let's all say that he rose from the dead even though he didn't, and let's go then get slaughtered and murdered. No. That's ridiculous. Because just before when he was arrested, all 12 of his closest followers left out of fear. But now all of a sudden, God the Father raises him from the dead, and you can't shut them up about the fact that he's alive. And not just them, but the 500 that he appeared to. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was during his lifetime. But now that he's alive after being dead, James then believed. James then became the leader of the church at Jerusalem, believing that his own brother was in fact the Messiah because he had seen him. He had been with him after he had died. Then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, Paul now brings his own life into the picture. As to one, the ESV says untimely born. Maybe a more helpful translation to us is stillborn. Someone in whom death reigned, like a stillborn child. Last of all, as one who was dead. This is Paul saying, when he appeared to me, see Acts chapter 9 for this, I was dead. Spiritually dead. Last of all, as to one stillborn, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Why are you the least? Why do you consider yourself dead? Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul knows he was spiritually dead because he went after those first followers of Jesus Christ. Some of the 500 that were witnesses, some of those apostles, some of those followers of Jesus, Paul went after to try to execute them, preside over their being persecuted. So no wonder he says, and then to a dead one he came. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we could all say that about ourselves with Paul, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Now, this starts to be very fascinating, and I'm going to resist the urge to preach the next few messages to you. But maybe just a little insight, okay? But the great, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. God showed grace to Paul, and what it did in Paul's life didn't produce something empty. It produced something. Work was then done. Fruit was then bore through Paul's new life. That's why he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So, so, see, so see what he says. His grace toward me was not in vain. So he didn't just save me and then he got nothing out of it. God got nothing out of it. No, he saved me and that wasn't vanity. That wasn't nothing. Something came from that for God. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, probably any of the apostles. I worked harder than any of them. Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Paul's saying, I was spiritually dead, stillborn, nobody, nothing. But the grace of God came for me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace produced something for the Lord. That's why in a little bit, uh, starting next week, we'll see Christ spoken of as the first fruits, the first fruits offered to God. And then came us, those of us who are resurrected from the dead, th then now our offering to God. Paul believes that resurrection 
then leads you to working for God, living for God, producing fruit for God, not being worthless, as 2 Peter 1 says, for God. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. This isn't Paul just going back to his high school football days. Oh, for once, uh, man, I was, I was something. They were kind of all this and I was this. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying when God breathed life, when God raised me from the dead, something came from that for him. Fruit came. Now, that's going to be sprinkled all throughout chapter 15, this expectation that because of, their, because of a resurrection of the dead, we then live like this. We work. We do something. We produce. Look down at verse 31. He's saying if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then just, just live how you want. But there is a resurrection of the dead. So live for God. Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? See what he's saying there? Brothers and sisters, why in the world would I go preach the gospel at Ephesus knowing that wild beasts could be unleashed on me in persecution and I would die? Why in the world would I do that if the dead are not raised? I'm going to risk my neck for the sake of the gospel because I know that even if I die preaching the gospel, I will be alive again like Jesus is alive. So do you see how resurrection of the dead gives clarity as to what we do now? Then he says this, verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's quoting a common saying of that day. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, hey, Let's just eat and drink and party, all right? Because tomorrow it's going to be gone. Verse 33, don't be seduced by that. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Again, this whole book has been, church, don't think like the world. Here again, church, don't think like the world. Don't be deceived. The world is going after all that they can grab. We're different because there's a resurrection of the dead coming. Bad company corrupts good morals, ruins good morals. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the very end of the discussion on the resurrection of the dead. All right, Paul, we get it. Jesus was raised by the Father. We will also live, physically live, be made alive again with him. We get it. Now what do you want from us? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So so hear what he said in our passage. The grace of God was given to me, And that grace of God was not given to me in vain. God just didn't give me his grace and then I just did nothing with it. No, no, no. I did something. I worked harder than all of them. I produced. I lived for him. I even risked my own neck because I knew I would be alive again. I I just used my life for the glory of God. And then at the end of the chapter, he tells those reading the letter, including us today, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This isn't just some cute thing that the apostles did. Oh, look at them. They were saved and look how they work. Look at that. That's so adorable. No, no, no. He's saying, you're coming with me. You're doing the same thing. He tells them in 1558, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor means something. Okay, so you could say, what's the application to 1 Corinthians 15? What's, what is the application? Because I'm going to rise from the dead in Christ, what do I do? Work for him now. Spread his glory. Care for his people. Preach his gospel. 
and your labor will not be in vain. Well, what if wild beasts come when I preach the gospel? Your labor will not be in vain. What if my family gets really upset at me when I preach the gospel to them? Your labor will not be in vain. There's a resurrection of the dead. I was unsuccessful. I preached my next few sermons. Please come back the next couple weeks, okay? All right. Back to verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, me or any of the other apostles or any of the other preachers that were preaching, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed, you trusted. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And verse 12 is one to kind of circle in your Bible. This is the argument here. This is maybe the crux of the whole chapter. So he's written to give them confidence, confidence in the gospel, confidence in the resurrection of Christ. But now here we see why he's saying this to them. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Some of them were buying the lie that the physical now is what we have, but the spiritual is truly what's best. And so when we die, no more physical and the spiritual, we will spiritually be with Christ. No, it's not what the Bible teaches. We are spiritually alive with Christ and he will give us new bodies so that we can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Actually, really, literally, physically. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And then he gives them the consequences of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. Verses 12 and 19. If there's no resurrection of the dead, here's the first consequence. Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So so let's follow your logic, Miss misled Corinthians. You say there's no life coming. There's no glorified bodies that will come to you one day. You won't be physically alive one day, just spiritually. If that's true, then Jesus Christ himself hasn't been raised from the dead physically. Another consequence, if there's no resurrection of the dead, your faith is worthless. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Part of the gospel appeal, part of the reason we come to God through Christ Jesus is because we want eternal, including physical, eternal life. And if that doesn't exist, that means death won the day. Satan won. I know that this body of mine, which is getting older and older by the moment, I can feel it, I know this body of mine is going to die, but I also know that Christ didn't lose. The serpent loses. The serpent's head is crushed. And so I've got another physical body coming. God created physical things. He's not done with physical and just bringing life to the spiritual. So our faith is worthless if there's no resurrection of the dead. Also, The people who told us about God lied to us if there's no resurrection of the dead. Verses 15 and 16. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, those that were proclaiming his gospel, preaching his gospel. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. We said that God raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So if Jesus hasn't been physically resurrected, then the apostles are liars. And if the apostles are liars, so is every other person who's preached the gospel to you. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, also verse 17, we are still considered sinners before God. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile meaningless, and you're still in your sins. The resurrection demonstrated that the sacrifice of Christ had been accepted by God the Father. Hear that again. 
the resurrection demonstrated that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sinners had been accepted by God the Father whom those sinners had rebelled against. The penalty's done and therefore now there's freedom and there's life. If after the service we all kind of walk out to our cars together at the same time and everyone who parks out there kind of walks out there and and you see my truck out there just damaged and on fire. And, and someone, one of you did that. Brad Penner just lit my truck on fire and <laughs> keyed it, took a hammer to it. And, and then I, what in the world? And later I get home and the house is on fire. Someone saw Brad running away with gasoline and matches and everything, you know. Hopefully, after you all called the cops on him and asked them to apprehend him, which I hope you all would do. (laughs) After that, and after Brad serves what is certainly going to be a very, 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 very long sentence, how would you know that Brad's penalty had been paid? How would you know? Because he'd walk out of prison. The walking out of prison is, okay, the time has been served. Okay, the penalty's been paid. He's now free to go. He's no longer paying for those crimes. He already paid. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you know that your sins have been forgiven? He walked out of the tomb. God accepted the sacrifice. All right, done. Done. And now his son has been seated with him and is the object of worship from people all around the world. And one day will only be worshiped by renewed people in the new heavens and the new earth. But the penalty has been paid. So if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, God the Father is still holding our sin against us. We've still got to pay. Also, if there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 18 Christians who've already died will perish forever. And this makes sense, right? I mean, if if we are still going to have to pay for our sins, then those who've already died before us, who claim to be followers of Christ, are also going to perish forever. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And, And the biblical word for perish isn't gone out of existence. Continue to suffer because of the justice of God forever. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, our loved ones who've gone before us in Christ are continuing to suffer and are perishing forever. Finally, verse 19, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we of all people should be pitied most of all. We are a sad bunch if there's no resurrection of the dead. Think about it this way. One of the things that is true about this church is as we teach the scriptures, we teach that Christians who come to Christ suffer with him. Life is hard. There are a lot of places around that don't want to tell you that. (laughs) You come to Christ every day is going to be a party. It's always going to be awesome. I mean, it's going to be fantastic, healthy, wealthy. I mean, Jesus promised the opposite. You've got a standing. You've got security. You've got his presence. You've got his word. You've got his people. You've got, you've got so many things, but you're going to have all those things as you suffer. You're going to follow the same path he followed, suffering then glory. We'll receive glory provided we suffer with him. So I hope you understand that that's what the scriptures teach to the followers of God. But now let's say there's no resurrection of the dead. Because there is a resurrection of the dead, we can suffer. The glory that comes is going to by far outweigh the suffering that we went through on this, in this life. We know that. We're taking that to the bank. There's glory coming. But if there is no glory coming, how pitiful are we? 
I'll follow Jesus and I'll be unpopular because of it. I'll follow Jesus and, and I'll miss out on a bunch of things that the world's doing, the, the eating and the drinking and the drunken stupor that they're engaged in as if that was somehow fulfilling. But hey, I, I'm missing out because I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm missing out because I know there's something coming and what I truly have is far greater. But, but if there is not something coming, I'm pathetic. I'm missing out. I'm suffering, and then I'm going to die and perish forever. I'm the most pathetic if the resurrection of the dead doesn't happen, isn't true. But it is true. So any suffering that we go through now will not be in vain because we know there's a reward coming and life coming and joy, bliss with him coming. But if there isn't, then we're pathetic. This final paragraph is Paul saying, if the resurrection weren't true, then these things, then this is how it is, right? You should pity us. There's no forgiveness of sins. Christ hasn't been raised. The dead who've died in Christ are perishing. It's a pathetic consequence. But what was the overall argument at the beginning of the chapter? Christ has been raised from the dead. See the witnesses. There's life. He's alive. And that's why Christians have confidence in the resurrection of the dead. That's why Christians are confident about the future. Listen to what Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, said to the church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, you ask people who aren't performing for cameras, who aren't trying to show off or something, you, you just strip someone bare and say, what are what do you think about the future? They are nervous. They are afraid. They don't know. They don't know. But when someone becomes a Christian, they've been born again. They now start to think with a new mind and a new heart. And what do Christians who are born again start thinking about? They have a hope for the future. There's a confidence for the future. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who are we to be confident about the future? Why can we be confident about the future? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why I'm confident, I'm confident about the future. So let the world worry and be fearful about the future. You be confident about the future because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are different we're different. We view things differently. We view eternity differently. So we're reminded from verses 1 through 19 that we can, be, we can be confident about the future because the gospel of Christ really does save and the resurrection of Christ really did happen. I love what Martin Luther said. God has written the promise of resurrection not just in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. What did he mean there? It's an appropriate time for that quote. It's spring. <laughs> look at the leaves. Look at the flowers. What do those communicate? Go back to Eden. Leaves, flowers, life, vibrancy, and then sin came. And God had warned, in the day you eat, you'll surely die. And when sin came, God pronounced a curse on the earth. The, the earth is cursed. Thorns and thistles are what you're going to know. I mean, you want corn and food and crops just to come easily? Here's what you're going to know, Adam. Thorns and thistles. And that's what we know. Getting food takes work. Enjoying the beauty of the creation is difficult. There are tornadoes, cyclones hurricanes. The earth is cursed. It's groaning. But God promised that the serpent would be crushed. He promised that life would come. 
And that's why Eve is considered the mother of the living. Get that. In the day you eat, you guys are surely going to die. But then Eve is called the mother of the living. Because while death reigns, there's still little signs of life. Look at a flower. God hasn't exterminated all life. Still flowers. Still leaves. Oh, and then over here, this young man was just saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life. Oh, then over here, a church sprouts up in a dark world. Life. Oh, over here, look, there's now a remedy for this disease. Not, not a perfect remedy that will keep us all alive forever, but just a little sign that God is stronger than the curse. Little signs all throughout of life. Until one day, as the resurrection points us to, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where only life reigns. And that's what we have confidence in because Jesus physically was raised from the dead. So sleep well at night. (laughs) The gospel really does save. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is our hope. This is our trust. This is our confidence. I pray that you would cause us to live like we're certain about the future. Give us the demeanor that is optimistic about what you're doing, trusting in what you're doing. Cause us to work, Father, so that our salvation wouldn't just be in vain, but we'd use the talents that you've given us and we'd produce knowing that any hardship we go through is not in vain. But you're keeping records, keeping accounts, and we'll be cared for and rewarded in that day. We know life is coming. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.